0: Well, good morning. My name is Corey Milliken, and I'm one of the pastors here at our church. It's a joy for me to preach for you and to you from God's Word this morning. It is a privilege to do so, and I'm grateful to be able to jump in and uh, participate in the series on God's attributes that we've been doing now, and, and especially focused in the book of Romans. So please, in your copy of God's Word, turn to the book of Romans to chapter 16, and we'll kind of work our way from chapter 16 back through the book of Romans a bit, looking at the attribute of God's peace and how it relates to us. Romans chapter 16, and then you can kind of just keep your place there as we move along. But before we jump into the, the text here, a bit of a... An illustration, the, the U.S., maybe you're aware of this, spends more than 800, about $800 billion a year in military and defense. And that's the most of, of any world, uh, of any nation in the world, sorry, also of any world, uh, because it's the only world that has military expenses. The, the U.S. spends over $800 billion and did last year and will again this year In military expenditures. And that is a staggering number, isn't it? $800 billion. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that massive number. $800 billion in military defense expenditures. Weapons. Personnel. All of our branches of the military. Massive amounts of money used in the defense of our peace and of other nations' peace in the world. And and for many of those things, we are very grateful. We're grateful to live in a nation that that spends money to defend itself and to defend and to protect others as well. We're grateful for that. But by way of illustration, think about how much good will be done in the new earth when all of the resources and money that is poured into military purposes by countries today are no longer used for warfare. No more guns, no more violence, no more bombs, no more military needed in the new earth. This will be the case when the Lord is reigning upon the earth. One day, all of human imagination that is used to craft military equipment and weapons will no longer be used for that. And it's been said of on that day that all military science, which today has reached such terrifying proportions, will then belong to a dark, distant past. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. And how we long for the return of Christ, don't we? We long for his return that will be followed by his earthly reign as described in the prophets. Jesus standing on this earth, ruling over this earth. In Zechariah chapter 14 and Revelation 20 to 22, we we see that reality described. And here on the earth, Jesus, the ultimate son of David, will rule from David's throne over Israel. He will be the great king, the great commander, the great chief. And there will be no more militaries needed. There will be no more weapons on the whole earth in that final day where Jesus is reigning on the earth, in the new earth. And in the new earth, Jesus' enemies who opposed him, who shook their fists at him and, and raised their arms against him, Will be defeated. Jesus' enemies who opposed him during the tribulation years will be defeated as we read in Revelation 19 to 21, and Satan and God's enemies will be thrown into the lake of what? Fire. I heard a fire out there also. Amen. The lake of fire and forever. And how humbling that is, isn't it? We, We, who were once God's enemies, should know the flames of that fire. But for those who trust in Christ, we will never know the heat of those flames. What a a hope we have. And what a sobering and humbling reality that is that there is a place where all of God's enemies will be for all of eternity under his judgment. Brothers and sisters, a glorious destiny of peace awaits us when we will live on a new earth with direct access to God who will then dwell among us. Can you imagine it? Peace will rule the kingdom to come. Peace. But until then, we live, when we live with the God of peace, until then, how are we to get along in this peaceless world? As Christ followers, we are called to live in peace. And yet we still cry out like David, like we did last week from Psalm 13 How long, O Yahweh? How long, O Christ, until you come and you set up this kingdom and you. Do away with all of your enemies and weapons and death and destruction. How long? But you know what? This is true. This cry is true for us, for the world in general, to be sure. But also for the disorder and the dysfunction and the pain caused by sin and conflict in our relationships. It's true in general, in a broad sense, but but also at the horizontal level, we say, how long, O Lord, must I endure and and continue to have to go and and for others to come to me because of conflict and to talk through those things and to pray through those things and to seek peace? How long until peace will be all that we know in our relationships? How long, O Lord? But peace in the scriptures deal with both the vertical and the horizontal. Peace with God and peace with others. And so carrying on in our Attributes of God series then, we need to know, and we will know better today, the God of peace. The God of peace. And what does the experience of peace with God look like? What does it mean for us? And it means this. It means everything in our lives right now. To know that God is the God of peace changes everything in light of the gospel of salvation and then in light of and in view of our relationships with one another. It means everything for our lives right now because if we have been made at peace with God, through the saving work of Christ, we have a gospel commitment to be pursuers of peace with one another. And not only do we have hope for that peace, that relational peace with one another, we do have hope because we have the God of peace, but we also have the help that we need. And so that's what we'll see this morning. We need to see First, that we, will, we will first behold the God who is peace. And then for our help, we'll see the peacemakers that God makes. For hope, we'll behold the God who is peace. And for our help, we'll see the peacemakers that God makes. But first, the God who is peace. The God who is peace. God is peace. The ultimate peacemaker isn't he God is the ultimate peacemaker he is the God who makes peace between his enemies and himself God who is holy and just and jealous and righteous and wrathful who should have nothing to do with those who have rebelled against him who are dead in their sins But instead, He is the ultimate peacemaker. He is the God of peace. God doesn't only give us peace, but He is the God of peace. And that's exactly what Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says. We'll read it together in a moment. He is the source of true peace. He is the God from whom all true peace originates. The garden was a garden full of peace. He created it to be that way. And in his plan, he had ordained that there would, become, uh, there, there would come a time where sin would enter that garden and would destroy and disrupt the peace that existed between God and men. But he had a plan, didn't he? To exalt himself, exalt himself as the peace-making God. Not only as the peace-keeping God, but as a peace-making God. And unlike the gods of the nations, our God, brothers and sisters, our God, the one true God, is a God who is and loves peace. But not only that, His Son is the Prince of Peace. And His Spirit brings peace. He is a triune God who, is, who loves to exalt His peace. But not the kind of peace like the world and our flesh want, where everything and everyone is just kind of okay. I'm okay with everything as long as you're not hurting me. We're just going to keep the peace. Shh, just keep the peace. And, you know, let's not shake the, you know, the, uh, rock the boat or anything. Let's just keep the peace. Kind of avoid one another. Not get too deep in our relationships and bearing each other's burdens. Let's just keep the peace, right? That's how we talk about peace. But let's look now at Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And then we'll look at another verse in Romans, at the end of Romans, as we consider the God of peace. Look at your Bibles with me. Romans chapter 16, the very last chapter of Romans, verse 20. Paul refers to God as the God of peace. Read it with me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's how Paul begins to end his letter. The God of peace isn't just this happy, tranquil, you know, always calm God. Not that he's ever out of control in a sinful way. But he is also the God who will crush Satan under our feet. The God of peace is the one from whom all true peace originates. Here's an interesting thing about this verse. Paul has one verse. One verse. In the whole book of Romans, at least from what I can tell, about Satan. One verse. And this is it. One verse in 16 chapters of the book of Romans, and that's it. Satan gets one mention in the whole book of Romans, which is all about the gospel, all about salvation... All about sin and the Savior. And he mentions Satan one time. And the only mention that Satan gets is that he's going to be crushed one day. He's going to be decimated and devastated and done away with. And that's it. He's doomed. Like Martin Luther put it, His rage we can endure for lo, his what is sure? His doom is sure. His doom is sure. Satan's end is coming. His reign of chaos and destruction, brothers and sisters, is coming. It is coming. And I love how one brother puts it in commenting on this verse. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Paul says that. And this is the promise. He says, To beleaguered We're struggling saints in times and places where it seems as if evil has the upper hand and Satan is devouring the world. And it does seem that way, doesn't it? John Piper says this. He says, it is a warning not to give up and change sides. It is an encouragement to keep on being vigilant against falsehood and idolatry and to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace one day, brothers and sisters, will crush Satan and he will do it under our feet. We will be victorious over sin and over Satan with the Lord once and for all one day. And even though now we struggle and we struggle with discouragement, From sin and conflict, one day ultimate peace will be established. And we get to join Christ in that defeat. Again, in Romans chapter 15, move back a chapter. Verse 33, Paul says, May the God of peace be with you all. Look at verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. All. Combined, these two prayer promises of Paul remind us of this that until the final victory, there will be grace for the long battle that we face to please the Lord and to strive for peace with others. Until that final victory, these promises remind us that there will be grace for the battles that we face and for the conflicts that we encounter and endure as we strive for peace with others. And as you know, if you've read the Bible, that this verse uh, in chapter 16, speaking of Jesus crushing Satan under our feet, is Paul alluding to Genesis chapter three verse fifteen, where God promises that the seed of the woman the, the, the ultimate the ultimate man who would come one day, which is a reference to the Messiah, would come forth to destroy the deceiver, destroy Satan, and who would fulfill the this Who would fulfill this snake-crushing promise? Paul calls him the God of peace. And we know that that's Jesus. Jesus would come and he would crush Satan. There was a day coming when God's people would be released from the soul-crippling grip of sin and Satan on their lives. And he would do it through his son, the seed of the woman. Who would crush the serpent who deceived Eve and Adam. And so throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we have this idea of, we, we see this idea of shalom, of peace being offered and extended from God to his people, with the future promise that one day this Messiah, this snake crushing king would come. And even though in Israel they didn't enjoy total peace. Thorough peace amongst the people. They had the promise, secure that the one who would establish this peace would come. Translated peace, shalom kind of carried the idea with it, the promise of harmony and salvation, joy and blessing and reconciliation. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind in his letters when he refers to God as the God of peace. He had in mind the reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, first to God, where there's no distinction, but also with God and each other, the, the vertical and the horizontal. Related to that text, 1 John 3.8 says this, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason that Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared to do something, and part of it was to destroy what the devil was doing. And and, and what is it that Jesus came to conquer? What about Satan's existence and his activity did Jesus come to destroy? Well, maybe we could sum it up in kind of three phases. We know that Satan has definitively been defeated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, don't we? We know that Satan, after Jesus' resurrection, is no longer the master over death, but Jesus releases and delivers sinners from Ultimate eternal death. He lives now as an example of what we will be one day when Jesus comes again. We will have resurrected bodies. We will live with him and dwell with him forever. God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And so we know definitively that Jesus dealt a crushing blow to Satan. In his death and resurrection. But we also know that he's being defeated by Christ through the gospel as it's proclaimed, as you and I, brothers and sisters, as we preach the gospel, as we speak the truth of the gospel, and as we strive for and grow in spirit empowered peace, as we resist the temptation to just kind of let conflicts go undealt with and sin go undealt with in each other's lives, but lovingly say, No, I I I want to. I want to cut bitterness off at the beginning. I want to strive for peace. I want to strive for what Jesus died to purchase in my relationships with my spouse, with my friends, with my children, with my pastors, with my church. But we also know that Jesus appeared to, cr- to destroy the works of the devil and that he will finally be defeated and thrown into the lake and never to deceive or torment the world again. Amen? Do we believe that? We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We know that that happened. And so we know that Jesus will finally and forever defeat and destroy Satan. He rose. He died and he rose 2,000 years ago and whenever Jesus comes again we know that he will he will defeat Satan and he will also finally and forever restore and renew our hearts so that we never think a judgmental thought again that we never are tempted to gossip again Or to exalt ourselves over another again, or to seek to to prove our worth over someone else again. Jesus not only will vanquish Satan in the lake of fire, but will forever eradicate our flesh. And what a day that will be! This is our God who is peace. He's the God who gives peace and who will establish peace once and for all one day. And sermons like this won't ever be needed again. Because now we're going to talk about the peacemakers that God makes. How does knowing the, that God is a God of peace change and transform our lives? What is it supposed to do in our relationships? This last Friday, we, we meet every first, uh, first Friday, first Friday of the month uh, as leaders. Any any person who is leading in, in the church is invited to come at six a.m. We sit in the foyer there. We've been studying through a book called uh, What's it called? It's about leading with love. Uh, it's a book on biblical leadership, and this week's chapter was on gently, lovingly restoring and confronting and and helping reestablish relationship when there's peace that has been broken. We are called to be peacemakers as God's people. So this is point number two. Point number one was the God who is peace. Point number two is this. We need to see the peacemakers that God makes. So what has God done? How does God make peace with us? Or how does someone gain God's peace? We know that God is the God of peace, but how do we gain His peace? Well, that is the gospel. The gospel, the good news of salvation, is the good news of peace with God, between God and men. Romans chapter 5, turn uh, from Romans 14, or Romans 15 rather, turn to Romans chapter 5, as we kind of trace this concept of peace. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, gives us the answer to the question. What has God done to establish peace in the hearts and lives of his people? And as we come to this text, here's what we need to know about peace. Peace, brothers and sisters, peace is not just some subjective feeling like, oh, I feel peaceful about this. Or I had peace about buying a cheeseburger for lunch today, so I did it. Uh, That's silly and strange. Peace is not some subjective feeling, but it is an objective reality that those who are in Christ aren't enemies with God anymore. And we we say objective because we look at the cross and we see what God objectively did. We know that he actually sent his son to the cross for sinners like us, apart from which there would be no forgiveness. There would be no reconciliation. We talked about this yesterday with Joseph. Joseph instructed us on this as we thought about the difference between the LDS understanding of the cross and ours. They don't emphasize the cross because they have to emphasize works. Jesus' cross is not significant. That was a nice thing for him to do. But you have to earn, you have to work, you might be saved by grace after all that you can do. And so in order to uphold that argument, you have to downplay the fact that the cross was the decisive moment where forgiveness and atonement, covering for sins, was made. That is the act. That is the good work. It was Jesus' good works, not ours. And so that's the objective reality that those who are in Christ aren't enemies with God anymore but have been declared forgiven and righteous through the blood of Jesus. That's peace. And if you know Christ in that way, if you know the gospel, if you believe the gospel, if you affirm and have come to, to grasp with, come to grips with your sin and the Savior, then you can know Peace. Look at the text, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we, we have peace with God. How do you have peace with God? How can you get peace with God? You come through Christ. Since, therefore, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him who have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's what God has done. The summary of the gospel in two verses right there. That is the good news. Memorize that verse and you'll be in good shape with any evangelistic encounter. The summary is this, that if you're in Christ, you presently have peace with God. Look what it says, we have peace with God. Here's the other reality described in this text, that this peace didn't come through our good deeds, but through the work of Christ to justify us by grace We are justified by his gift, by his kindness, by his mercy, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection. Not ours. We didn't die on the cross. Jesus did. We should have, but he died in our place. You see, peace with God does not come through you being a good person. It does not come by through you doing penance, confessing your sins to a priest. Peace does not come through any of those means, but through the work of Christ, who was perfect, and as such, in his death, on our behalf was a perfect sacrifice to cover for sins. A death was required, and his was perfect, and his. Was accepted by the Father. But also, we see that this peace through Christ produces joy. Look at what the text says. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in his grace right now, if we're in Christ. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice. We know peace with God. We know that we've been reconciled to God and we enjoy peace with Him now with the hope that one day we will be with Him forever. It's not hope like cross your fingers. I hope this happens, but it is a steady and a fixed confidence that what God has promised He will deliver on. Saints, are you rejoicing daily in the hope of the coming? of Jesus and of your eternal life with him. Are you rejoicing in that? Because if you're not, then you'll be distracted and you'll be discouraged and you'll be caught up in the little niggly conflicts of life and you'll be consumed by those things. And life will not be joyful, but you will be discouraged and troubled. Rejoice in the hope of glory that is to come because of the peace that you now know through Christ. And so how does this change us? What does this do? Why does it matter? What does God making peace for us mean? What does it mean for us? Well, according to God's peacemaking work through Jesus, we aren't only right in our relationship to God, but with believers But as believers who are now sons and daughters of God, we are saved to pursue peace with one another. With God as our Father. Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes says that blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called what? Sons of God. If we are in Christ through His finished work on the cross, then He has called us sons of God. That is the blessedness of that beatitude. We are blessed because we're in God, and He calls us sons of God. And who is our Father? He is our Father. And we're called to pursue peace with others. Romans eight verses six and eight reminds us and declares that. In fact, turn. In fact, you're right there. Romans chapter six verse eight, verses six and eight says that the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. So how do you know if you're controlled by the Spirit? One, one way is if you desire and you pursue peace with those that you're in conflict with, that you seek out peaceful relationships in gentleness and in kindness. You pray for an opportunity to have a, a tough conversation because you're not sure if, whether you've offended someone or not, but you want to know because you want to reflect and display the kind of peace that God has made between you and himself. But look again what it says in verse, verses 6-8 through eight there of, of chapter 8. He says, The mind on the spirit is life and peace, for the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The sinful mind is hostile to God. In other words, death marks the life of unbelief. But life and peace mark the believer. Life, true life, hope for eternal life, living for God, that kind of life, living to please the Lord, and to live in peace with God's people, that is the mark of the believer. But here's the problem. The problem with peace is this. Keeping the peace is really hard and just keeping the peace isn't sufficient we don't just keep the peace we don't just kind of steer away from and avoid people and just kind of keep them at arm's length we, we, we know them well enough that you know they know we're nice people and I know they're a nice person oh yeah they're a good person everyone's a good person that's that's not what keeping peace means. That's not what pursuing and striving for peace is, but that's the problem is that we're tempted to just kind of avoid dealing with conflicts in our lives because it's messy. And I'm guilty of that as well. And so now turn to Romans chapter 12 as we continue to think about this theme. Romans chapter 12 verse 18 is one of the most realistic down-to-earth verses in the whole Bible, I think. You'll see what I mean. In Romans chapter twelve, we know the context is presenting our bodies to God, our whole lives as God uh, to to God. Uh, as what does he say? He says as living sacrifices. Our whole life in Romans chapter twelve verse one is an offering to the Lord. Is to say, God, I'm yours. Use me how you want. Use me how you please in service, and ministry, in my family, in the world. I am yours. Use me for your glory. But it's in view of his mercy toward us. He's been merciful to us, and that's why we would offer ourselves to God and say, God, I'm yours. Do with me what you want. Ask of me what you will. Command of me what you desire, and I will do it. And then Romans chapter 12, verse 18, in in, in view of that, gives us this helpful verse, this helpful exhortation. Beloved, uh, sorry, verse 18. If possible, in other words, as we're presenting ourselves as, as living sacrifices to God, going about our lives, serving and loving and caring for people, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Isn't that really helpful? That's very realistic, isn't it? If it was just be at peace with all people, and that was all Paul said, like, man, this is, how, how do we do this? Because I, I have situations in my life, relationships, that it seems like the conflict is just never ending, never ceasing. Every day it's a It's a conflict. Well, let's notice some things about this exhortation, about how we as God's peacemakers that he has made through the blood of his son, how we're to live. We know that the problem with peace is it's difficult to pursue. But Paul gives us some helpful exhortation and encouragement for how to pursue this, how to display the peace that we enjoy and have experienced with God through Christ to one another. We see here four things. We pursue peace as part of our calling as a Christian. Look at what he says. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, be pursuing peace at all times. In fact, chapter 14, verse 19 uses similar language. Look there. Romans chapter 14, verse 19. as we think about not wanting to cause others to stumble and being careful of each other's weaknesses and strengths as it relates to eating and drinking. In the context of a pagan place like Rome, where there was Gentiles and Jews now serving Christ with different convictions on what things they should eat or drink or how they should follow the Lord. He says this, Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. We pursue peace. That is our call. We are peace pursuers, or as, as another has said, we are peacemakers. We pursue peace. That word pursue is the same word that's used to describe persecution. Paul was persecuted. People sought after Paul to Ruin him. They sought after Jesus to destroy him, to kill him. It's the same word that Paul uses here. Pursue peace. Persecute peace? I don't know. Pursue peace in such a way that you are striving after it with all of your might, with all of your strength. Seek out peace. Track down peace. Run after peace. Strive for peace. We're commanded to live at peace. This is about obedience. It's about obedience. That's the first thing we see in Romans 12, verse 18, in this realistic verse. Look again what he says. Read the verse back at 12, 18. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What does he say? We must pursue. Here's here's the second thing we glean from this text. We must pursue peace with all people. All people, saints and sinners, one another, and our unbelieving friends and unbelieving family members. Be at peace, pursue peace with them. But here's the here's the rub. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always happen like we would want. And so what's the next thing that we learn from this text? He says this, if possible, if possible, or as much as it depends on you, seek peace and entrust the results to God. Seek peace and entrust the results to God. You can't change someone else's heart. No one can change your heart except for one person. And that's God through the Holy Spirit, through his word. Now, as we endeavor to pursue peace and strive for peace, we use his word. God uses people who are vehicles to deliver the truth of God's word to help us wrestle with sin and strife in our lives. But as we are called to pursue peace, that's the point, that's the key, is that it's something we ought to, we must seek out and strive for. And this is just one way that we offer ourselves to God From chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We strive for peace with all people. We seek for peace with all men. Again, 14.19 says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue it. Strive for it. Seek it out. And here's the, here's the promise. As, as we think about being peacemakers that God makes, I want to get really practical. And, and I'll admit, I'll confess, I am not great at these things, just like you. Seldom do I say of, think of myself, I am great at making peace with people. I, I work with brothers who know that I am a sinner and I'm selfish all the time. You serve with me. I serve among you. You see me. I struggle in the same ways you do. And so God has given us great help in his word and there's great resources and I'm going to lean on a couple of them this morning and have. In fact, I was talking to a sister who's in a biblical counseling program right now, shared some books with me this weekend. So helpful. There are people in our church who are pursuing formal training in biblical counseling because we believe that God's word is sufficient for all things. Conflict, counseling, the problems of life, Another way to ask that question is, what is God's word not sufficient for? What is it not good for? It's good for everything. And so I'm so thankful that they're pursuing this training. But these resources are helpful. One is Pursuing Peace by Robert Jones. I would commend it to you. Another one is, is the, the Peacemakers Ministry by Ken Sandy. But here's, here's the promise of striving for Peace as we think about being peacemakers, as we think about living with others, sinners like ourselves, who we must be pursuing peace with, even though it's really hard, here's the promise. The promise is that God, what he calls us to do, he will be faithful to grant if we will pursue it. If we will submit ourselves to him and obey him. We're going to talk about that some more here. But once God has saved us and He's made us His own, He brings us in as His own children. He adopts us in. What a glorious picture adoption is of us who were far from the Lord. And He made us His own. And He calls all who trust in Christ children of God. And we become peacemakers. We become ambassadors. Those who go to those who don't have peace with God and say, Look, you can have peace with God. Come to Christ. Look at the cross. Look at his work. Repent and turn from your sin and run to Christ. He will welcome you into his family. That's what it means to be an ambassador, a peacemaker. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we're to strive for peace with all people. And especially in the church. Why? Because Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. John chapter 13. How will the world know? One of the ways is that they will see our love and our care for one another, our sacrificial lives for each other, our gentle spirits when we have to help each other, deal with conflict, and they'll say, they must belong to God. They have a different dad than me. Because before Christ, our father was Satan. That's what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember that? Your father is the devil. Because they did not love God. They did not love Jesus. But our father is God through Jesus Christ. That's what the world will see as we seek to make peace with one another. The promise of peace is this. Jesus says in John fourteen twenty seven, My peace I leave you. I give to you, Jesus says. Not only internal peace, which is true, an assurance of the good things to come in eternity and eternal life, but he gives us peace among one another if we will strive for it. And then he empowers us to fight for it. But the question is this. Are you? Are you striving for peace? Are you obeying the Lord? Are we obeying the Lord actively to fight for and to strive for peace? Fight for peace, that sounds a a bit contradictory. But that's the idea. We have to fight for it. It's a hard thought because we're sinners. We're fleshly people who still have stuff that needs to be rooted out and dealt with. But not only are you and do you pursue peace, but why should you? Well, the New Testament stress on fellowship underscores the biblical call to pursue love and unity in the church. What happens if we don't? What happens if two believers will not fight for and strive for peace and instead let con- sinful conflict persist? Well, eventually it explodes, it festers. And it explodes and it makes a mess and it destroys fellowship. It destroys unity. It destroys the one-mindedness that we're called to in Romans chapter 12, verse 16. And if you or I are cause for division because we won't deal with conflict but instead we'll talk about it and we'll, we'll in a discontent way, we'll talk about how other people have offended us, eventually that can... That can uh, billow up into a a cloud that just rains down the the acidic rain of selfishness and pride. And if that happens, we're to be lovingly corrected, and if not repentant, we're to be dismissed from fellowship as warped and sinful and self-condemned. God takes this kind of peace-seeking and peace-making seriously. Eventually to the point in Titus chapter 3 where Paul says, do away with the divisive man. Do away with him. Cast him out. Let me just read that to you. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once And then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. We don't want to be those kinds of people. Most of you in this room are not in that place at the moment. But if not dealt with, it can result in that. Undealt with sin and conflict results in catastrophic effects. a faulty view of God that God just kind of accepts us as we are and he's kind of our, our spiritual Santa Claus who just kind of is this nice guy in the sky who gives us what we want and, and doesn't really care how we live because I walked an aisle or I was baptized or I said a prayer. He, he's okay with me just kind of living how I want. That is a faulty view of God because God expects us to change and to grow and empowers us to do it. But an unwillingness to pursue peace in our relationship is a recipe for disaster in the church. AKA, sanctification is stunted because our view of God is too low. Because our view of God says He doesn't this isn't that big a deal. Conflict isn't that big a deal. It's just a small thing. But a small thing becomes a big thing left undealt with. And God cares about that because he cares about his church. Being an accurate reflection of his character. And so, what's our responsibility in pursuing God like peace with other believers? Well, I want to I draw out some implications from this text. What is our responsibility as we resolve, as, as we seek and, and pursue to resolve conflict as soon as possible? That is what Romans chapter 12, verse 18 calls us to do. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then verse 19, the principle is this. Pursue what makes for peace. If we want to grow in this church, which we need to, we do need to. Maybe a question for you is, would you say that a strength of our church, Gold Country Baptist Church, is lovingly admonishing one another to pursue likeness? Is that a strength of ours? I want you to think about that. Is that a strength of ours collectively, corporately? Is it a strength of yours? Is it an area that you want to grow in? Here's some help from God's word for how to do that as we resolve to deal with conflict as soon as possible. First is this. Turn to Romans chapter, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. What is the foundation of pursuing peace? In our relationships, what is the theological underpinning of this whole deal? I think a great summary of it is found here in Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse five. I memorized this verse years ago, and if I ever had a kind of a life verse, it would be this. Would be one of them. I'm not really one for having life verses, but Second Corinthians five nine is is a great verse to memorize. This is what Paul says. Having talked about being afflicted and and crushed and longing for heaven, he says this. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Whether you're home in heaven one day, Paul says, or here on earth, your aim for your life for all of eternity is to please Christ. So here's the question. Is that your desire? Is that your desire is to please Christ, to please God with your life? Is it your aim? Is it your desire to please the Lord with your whole life? Commit to that. Because a failure to please God, a failure to commit to pleasing God is... The ultimate cause for sinful conflict, either in my heart or in your heart. If we're in conflict, one of us is not pleasing to the Lord, or maybe both of us. And so we have to commit to seek to please God as our ultimate goal. And in Christ, brothers and sisters, this is possible. This is possible. So if we're seeking to please the Lord and conflict arises, what do we do? What do we do to deal with conflict in a loving, godly way? The first step is this, resolve to seek to please the Lord, right? Step one, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, make it your aim to please God. Step two, repent. Repent, right? That is a turning from sin. That is the 180 of the heart from sin, from sinful conflict, from selfishness, from sinful speech that has hurt your brother or sister and says, Lord, I confess it. That was sinful. It was wrong. And I don't want to live like that. I want to grow in loving speech. I want to grow in in speech that if Jesus were standing next to me, he would say, well done. Keep going. Lord, I confess that. And I'm going to turn to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. Repent. That's repentance. Moralism, just, just try harder. Doesn't work. I'll just try harder. I'll just do better next time. No, no, no. The recipe is repentance. It's not try harder. It's repentance. Turn from your sin, forsake it, and say, Lord, I want to obey. But what, is, what does repentance look like? Well, it's confession. Confession of what? Of wrong motives, of sinful attitudes, of, of beliefs, of, of things, uh, beliefs about people or about others that aren't true. sinful attitudes, sinful motives, sinful desires, confessing, Lord, my desire is to exalt myself. In that moment, when I was making fun of that person, I was making a joke at the expense of that brother or sister, I was exalting myself over them. That was a, that was a wrong motive that does not go back to point one, please you. I was not seeking to please you in that moment. I was seeking to please me. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What comes out of our hearts, sinful stuff, sinful actions, sinful speech, sinful deeds, that's our heart. Those Those are the desires of our hearts, the motives in our hearts, and those are to be confessed and forsaken. But not only that, we confess behavioral sins. We confess sinful words and actions. Matthew chapter 5, or chapter 7 rather, verses 3 through 5, shows us this. I'll just just read it to you. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, as we think about confessing sinful behavior, he says this, listen to this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, right? Just imagine that. It's a pretty vivid illustration there. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, confess, repent, right? Identify sinful motives, sinful behaviors, First, seek to take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When you're in sinful conflict with someone, you need to look to your own heart first and say, Lord, is there anything in me that has caused this conflict? And if there is, would you show it to me? Reveal it to me through your word. Show me the sin that I need to confess and forsake. Take the plank out of my eye, the plank of sinful behavior and throw it away from me. Start with yourself, start with your own heart, and then we seek to help others, right? That's the principle there in Matthew chapter seven. And when we're pursuing peace with someone and it it doesn't seem to come, and we've done this step. Go back to step one. Is it my desire to please the Lord? I've sought to confess and to repent, and I've even gone to that brother now and, and sought to resolve the conflict, but it's not going very well. Just take some time to go back to step one and say, Lord, is it my desire to please you or am I, am I some way seeking to please myself in all of this? If no plank appears, maybe you do need to go back to that person and graciously say, hey, brother, sister, I've sensed some distance between us recently, some, some tension. I wonder if there's some way that I've offended you that I'm not aware of or... or if, if there is, I would love to know because I want there to be peace between us. And maybe things are great. I'm just not sure. I, I feel a little weird about it. But I just wanted to open the door. Is there anything there that uh, that we need to talk about? That's a really good conversation to have after you've looked at your own heart. And even after you've gone maybe initially to someone, you might need to go back and, and ask them again. But here's the third step. After we seek to please the Lord, we seek to repent and confess our hearts and our behaviors. We need to love the person. We need to love the person. And this is really helpful from Robert Jones. He gives three areas that we need to love people in the stage of making peace with one another. Love the person with attitudes of grace. Attitudes of grace. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15, we're called to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. if the peace that that we know and love through the gospel is ruling in our hearts and we're dwelling on that, we're rejoicing in the peace that we have with God through Christ, it will rule in our fellowship. It will. Love the person with attitudes of grace. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 12 through 15 just briefly and mark this down for later. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. It says, put on then, put on then as, as the clothes of the new person, the new man, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a, patient, uh, a complaint against an, one another or another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. These are the attitudes of love, the attitudes of grace. If you have conflict, sinful conflict, pray through these attitudes and say, Lord, give them to me. I want compassion to rule in my heart, I want kindness to rule in my heart, not selfishness, not pride. Colossians 3, the, the next way that we love one another, 3 verse 13 is, says this, we are to forgive one another. Forgive one another. To release the guilt of that person against us by saying, I will forgive you. I do forgive you. And that starts in our hearts by having an attitude of forgiveness, but then in our interactions with that person to say, when they come and confess to you or when you confess to them, for us as brothers and sisters to say, yes, I will forgive you. How could I not? I've been forgiven in Christ. And we need to say those words, brothers and sisters. We need to say to one another, I forgive you. Don't say things like this. It's all right. When my children are instructed to go and say, you need to ask forgiveness uh, from mommy for not sinning and disobeying and speaking disrespectfully to her. Laura and I don't say, it's okay. Don't say that to my children. If they ask forgiveness, please say to them, I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. We need to help each other use the language that actually shows and conveys that restoration is being made and forgiveness is being granted. Use the biblical language. Give and grant forgiveness. But third also, as we love one another, speak the truth lovingly speak to the, the truth. I, I loved the emphasis in our series through First Corinthians 13. And Phil and I were talking about this, this this week. The word confront, I'm gonna go confront that guy. I need to confront this person. I was confronted by this person. That's, that's language that is really hard for us to, to kind of get on board with because confrontation is, is often just very negative. But lovingly speaking the truth with gracious hearts is exactly what we're called to do. Galatians chapter 6 gives us an example for how we're to do this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, listen to this, any transgression, if they're caught, they don't see it, they can't perceive it. You who are spiritual, any Christian who's walking with the Lord in obedience to him, making it your aim to please Christ, what do you do? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. And keep a watch on yourself lest you too be tempted and bear one another's burdens. That's what lovingly speaking the truth to one another is. That's what this concept of going when we realize that something, someone has something against us or, or going when we realize that we've done something against one another in Matthew. We go Because in gentleness, we want to express that we're not okay with sinful conflict persisting in our relationship. We go to bear a burden or to relieve a burden, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Not thinking that we're something when we're not, but with humility. And so we speak the truth in love. Here's, here's a key principle, and we'll end with this. In either case, if someone has offended you or you have offended someone else, we go. We go. Matthew chapter five verse 23. This is important for us as we come to the Lord's table. Matthew chapter five, verse 23. Turn there with me. Chapter five, verse 23 twenty six, He says this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, someone's gone to make a sacrifice to worship the Lord, maybe to atone for their sins. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, put aside your worship activity for the moment, before the altar and what? Go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Go. If you realize that someone has something against you, go. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 16. The church restoration process. If someone has offended you, you can still go. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Not in anger, not in frustration, not in bitterness, but go and tell him his fault. In either case, the Lord calls us to to take the first step to pursue peace with others. Here again, the words of the apostle: Strive to we strive to keep our conscience clear before God and man. If possible, we live at peace with everyone. He, Romans 14, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep unity. Flee evil desires. Pursue peace. Make every effort, in Hebrews 12, to live in peace with all men. That's what we do. We go. If we've been offended or we have offense or or we've... We know that, that uh, we've offended someone else. The call is to lovingly go. Do not sweep sin under the rug. Lovingly, with gentleness, go, church. Go. Go for the grace of God, for the glory of God. And this is the secret to beginning to seek things that make for peace. We are forgiven sinners if we have enjoyed peace with God, if we enjoy that now, we will strive to live at peace with others. We're forgiven sinners, brothers and sisters. That is amazing, isn't it? We're forgiven. And since Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, has done everything possible to make peace between us and God, we're to do everything in our power to pursue and maintain peace with other believers. That's our call. And that's the secret to pursuing, to to seeking the things that make for peace, is to not be passive, to not be content with kind of a glossed-over view of conflicts. That Oh, it'll just get better. Things will just get better. They don't. This is why we have Matthew 18 and Matthew 5 and 7 to help us. This is the secret to seeing the Lord work in your life to resolve a decade of conflict in your marriage. Or in your children's relationships with you, or in your friendships. This is the secret and the starting place to watching the Lord transform our hearts and our church continually for the glory of God. For our God is the God of peace. Let's strive for this together, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, help us in this. Help us in these things, we pray. We need you, we need your strength, we need the commitment and the conviction the devotion to pursue these things just as you in love sent your son to save sinners, to heal the sick. So we are called to to seek in love and in gentleness and prayerfully those that we are in conflict with. God, grow me, grow us as a church in this. Don't let us settle. Don't let us settle for passivity. Passivity. That is of the devil, and it does not promote unity. Help us, we pray in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.